As a WERU listener, you can leave a lasting gift to everyone who values community radio. By making a planned gift, you can support WERU Community Radio for years to come. For more information, contact your financial advisor or call WERU General Manager Matt Murphy at 469-6600. Support for WERU comes from Harry Brown's Farm, Starks, Maine, where there is music in the cafe at night and revolution in the air. Dig at harryshill.net and Facebook Harry Brown's Farm. The time is 10 o'clock on the dot, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on weru We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Well, to paraphrase Will Rogers, we've sometimes come to feel that, that uh, feel the same as when the legislature is in session as when the baby gets a hold of the hammer. We get that sense from reading the headlines. But what about beyond the headlines and the work of individual legislators, the 186th of our neighbors who have volunteered to go and do the people's business in Augusta? So this morning we're going to talk with um, some legislators from the Hancock County area and get a sense of what's what's behind the scenes, really, what's beyond the headlines. Because I, my sense is that there's a lot of, of, of genuine work that goes on that doesn't make it into the headlines. And I'm glad to have some folks in the studio with us, and we'll talk with another um, by phone later on. But state Representative Brian Hubble is with us um, from Bar Harbor, th- that region. Welcome to you, Brian. Uh, good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. And welcoming back uh, Re- State Representative Walter Camiega from uh, Deer Isle, uh, Stonehenton area. Welcome to you, Walter. Thanks, Ron. Glad to be here. So perhaps each of you, uh, starting with Brian, could uh, say a little bit about what motivated you to um, get involved in politics, what your background was, and then then we'll talk more about your committee work. But Brian, h- how did you get started in this? Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, I I came to state politics after probably not thinking about it for many years uh, as a member of the school board, Bar Harbor. Uh, it's my tenth year serving there. Got involved with public education, and uh, in in the process of that work, found myself increasingly going to Augusta to uh, to uh, provide testimony, uh, work with our legislators there, and. Uh, it won't surprise people who know the state to find that the the opportunities for citizen involvement are kind of astonishing. It's one of the things that makes the state great. Mm. I got hooked on that and ended up serving the legislature myself. This is my first term. Okay, great. And uh, Representative Kumiega, a little bit about your background and what what motivated you to, to get involved as a citizen, making the leap from citizen to to a, a politician or legislator. Uh, very similar, actually. I came through the Deer Isle Stonington School Committee. Uh-huh. Um, 
And actually what prompted me to get involved there uh, was uh, I was involved in the local Head Start program. Uh-huh. Uh, my daughter was a Head Start student, and uh, uh, I'm still a board member of Child and Family Opportunities, mm. which is the Head Start grantee for Hancock and Washington counties, and they also provide child care and, and other services. And uh, um, getting involved with that kind of gave me the confidence, among other things, to, uh, to get involved with the school committee. And uh, so I was elected there. I served nine years on a uh, few years, as, several years as chair. Mm. And uh, then, you know, our, <clears throat> our representative at the time was Hannah Pingree, and she was turned out. And uh, I asked somebody who was running for her seat, and the answer was, well, no one right now. Are you interested? And Next thing I knew, I was uh, in Augusta visiting the Capitol, and, um, you know, it's a kind of a whirlwind thing, but uh, I enjoy it. Mm. I'm in my second term now, and uh, um, I I like doing it. Mm. And this notion of of starting um, as a citizen and being involved in the life of your community and getting intrigued by some of that – it seems like a logical kind of move because, as as Brian, you were saying, um, there's a lot happening in Augusta that influences what happens at the local level. Yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, I, it, you know, it's hard to imagine the dynamic that happens in this state uh, <laughs> happening elsewhere. It really is the, the amount of influence that an individual citizen can have, both on their local community and even at the state level, uh, is remarkable. It's mm. one of the things that makes this state special. Well, both of you started out in in kind of the, from the educational um, realm. Um, Brian, you've stated with it in your committee assignment. Um, Walter, you moved to marine resources, so we'll come to that in a minute. But um, Brian, tell us about the work of the Education and Cultural Resources Committee. Um, well, right now we're uh, in, involved with concluding analysis of a, uh, a long-standing study about school funding and equity. Uh, a perennial thorny problem, uh, and and so that's what we're we will be dealing with immediately. Uh, we just had spent the past two days uh, hearing the final versions of that report and trying to decide what vehicles we're going to use to to uh, to move forward with that. And what else does the that committee deal with in general? Oh, it's, uh, well, it's edu- education policy in general. Uh, so the. Big things that have been affecting schools recently, uh, legislation involving teacher evaluations, the trans, uh, transition to standards-based learning. Uh, many of these things come down to funding and in the climate that everyone's aware of and on all the committees. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the struggle that we're we're facing right now. Well, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this um, school funding equity issue, which has been with the state for a long time, yep. um, and, and and will continue to be. But uh, we'll find out more about that. And uh, Representative Comiega, you chose marine resources to get involved in. Now you're chairing that committee. Um, what led you to that that piece? Um, mostly my district. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm not a fisherman. I'm a carpenter, but. Uh, um, I've got the most fisheries-dependent district in the state. Um, you know, people in my district harvest more lobster. Uh, there's more commercial fishing licenses than any other district. Uh, so it just seemed like a logical place for me to, to best represent uh, the interests of my communities. Um, and and it's, it has been. I think it's been a good experience. Um, I, and I think it's definitely a good fit for typically 
whoever is been the representative of that district has been on that committee. Mm. Um, so what was the learning curve like for you? Um, you you, it, you probably absorbed some of it um, in your life on, on Deer Isle Stonington area, but what was the learning curve? For yeah, uh, I learned a lot just living there, and then I learned a lot more campaigning and knocking on doors because um, fishermen like to talk. Um, and uh, and then and then I kind of went through the whole learning curve again uh, last year because I became chair, and that's a whole other realm of, of responsibilities. Um, and then I went through it a third time because I was appointed to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission as the legislative commissioner. And uh, and there's a whole other set of, of uh, political, uh, I don't want to say games, but uh, uh, workings that you have to navigate. Um, I've heard Robin Alden talk about that that, that all of these um, kind of things are nested together, starting at the local level, the state, and then the federal um, levels. And so there's complications at each of those levels. Yeah, everywhere they interact. You know, the ASMFC interacts with uh, um, the uh, it's got the New England Council or that are are charged with um, regulating federal waters. ASMFC is state waters for fisher, fish species that are found up and down the coast. Mm. For example, eels were heavily involved in, because of Maine's elver fishery and, and other states have uh, adult eel fisheries. And uh, you know what happens in Maine affects the eel population in Florida and vice versa. Because they're connected. I mean, they're, yeah. the, the ecology and their their species behavior links links those two places. Yeah, it was created. The ASMFC was created because somebody recognized that fish don't recognize state borders. Mm. Mm. So, in in general, um, the question I asked uh, um, Representative Hubble was was um, what do you deal with on marine resources? Yes, fish, but um, tell us a little bit more about the kinds yeah. of issues that you, you you deal with typically. Well, any, any fish that any anadromous or um, ocean fish that's uh, species, um, everything from seaweed to lobsters, um, aquaculture. Um, softshell clams um, and our regulations uh, you know our our goal is to achieve sustainable fisheries mm. um, so that you know next year's harvest is equal to or greater than this year's harvest I think is a and you know mother nature has a role in that um, you know there are things that uh, we can't control so we do the best to control what we can, and uh, and hopefully Mother Nature plays along. Mm. Um, certainly, I think our shrimp fishery is an example of that. Um, you know, st- st- statistically, it was overfished in the last three years, but that really isn't why the fishery was shut down. It was shut down because of natural um, occurrences. The hatch failed for three years in a row. And uh, so there's very, very, very low population, especially of juvenile shrimp. Mm. So, so the, the shrimp I took out of my freezer for dinner last night was, was last year's crop. I'm not going to have that pleasure this year. No. And um, maybe for a couple of years. Probably for a couple of years. Right. I mean, there are still shrimp, uh, you know, northern shrimp that are harvested uh, off Greenland and Nova Scotia and um, Iceland. Um, and they're... They're the same shrimp, but they're not the same shrimp mm. in some way. They don't uh, – the Gulf of Maine shrimp population doesn't mix with 
So this is the kind of thing that I've learned over the last few years. <laughs> I didn't know that much about shrimp. All I knew a couple of years ago was that shrimp were good to eat. Right. Um, but the, the Gulf of Maine shrimp population is isolated from the other shrimp populations. So if, if our shrimp were to die out, that's it. The other sh- uh, shrimp from Iceland would have to swim through the, uh, the Gulf Stream and over George's Bank to get into the Gulf of Maine. And they don't do that. They're lazy. <laughs> They're la- well, they, they, they get eaten. They'd have to swim through warm water, which they don't like, so they just don't do it. Right. Um, right. So we have an isolated population. It's been isolated for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to take care of it. And we're coming to find out um, more and more about um, what's unique about our um, that, that Gulf of Maine piece, that, mm. that notion that um, there's some distinctive differences, and we need to manage differently, perhaps. Sure, yeah. Um, there's differences in the groundfish populations. Mm-hmm. You know, the groundfish that are found elsewhere, same thing, don't necessarily come into the Gulf of Maine. Mm-hmm. So. Well, we'll come back to you in, in, a, in a minute, um, asking basically the question um, of both looking back and looking ahead. But let's look back for a little bit and talk about the last session. Um, Representative Hubble, what were some of the things that you were, were satisfied, uh, pleased about in terms of the work of the Education Committee? Um, it, uh, I, I think probably what was most gratifying is being able to, uh, to, to ameliorate some of the effects we've had recently for budget cuts. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt as legislators as a whole that probably our most significant success was the bipartisan budget, which we got passed. Uh, uh, and 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 so to me, that process that resulted in that was sort of the legislature at its best, uh, and it was gratifying to be a work with the education part of the budget in relation to that, and make the case for a little more funding. Mm-hmm. And and what did that? Um, how did that affect local schools, for instance? Um, that that kind of making sure that that some of that budget cut got restored. Um, I. I of course, would prefer to be positive, but probably the answer to that is that it wasn't as bad as it might have been. Okay. Um, there were there were a number of compromises that were made. The local from the local school side probably didn't feel so good. We we transferred the normal retirement costs to local schools, uh, but we were able to uh, to increase. I think over the biennium around thirty eight million dollars that's distributed statewide uh, to schools. So that there. Had we not been able to do that, there would have been significant program cuts in education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in, th- in that respect, it was positive. Mm-hmm. But we we have an ongoing effort, as 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 most people well understand, towards increasing the state's support for education. We've made a promise back in two thousand and five to pay for the legendary fifty five percent, and we're still struggling to to reach that. Mm. So uh, perhaps that um, speaks to the whole overall budget. Just remind listeners, um, where does the state get its money? <laughs> and and um, you know, how, how do we kind of create a budget? What's the process? Um, well, it's, it's, uh, it's a l- large, complicated, and not very pretty process. So the revenue, you know, comes from, well, statewide, uh, comes from, you know, income tax, sales tax, uh, various uh, corporate taxes. Uh, the overall state spending, particularly as it relates to schools, it also depends on property tax. Uh, and to the extent that the state doesn't support education or other municipal services, we cut revenue sharing uh, last time, then 
that is usually typically made up for by local property taxes. Uh, so depending on your perspective on it, it seems fairly clear that as the state was cutting back funding that we were putting an additional burden on property taxpayers. Uh, so the, that that is, again, a theme of the struggle uh-huh. that we've had, at least in the past session. We hope to deal with this session as well. Right. So um, any particular challenges besides the, the overall budget um, uh, situation that you grappled with as a legislator in terms of your work on the Education Committee? Any particular challenges that um, may be carried over and you're going to be working on, on this time? Um, in particular on the Education Committee, uh, I mentioned school funding in general. There was a, we, we had a couple of bills, one regarding charter school funding. Charter schools another perennial issue for, for the Education Committee, uh, which we nearly solved. Uh, I, th- I think last time we were unable to. Really what we're facing is the, a new dynamic for most people. We have the, the uh, legislature with Democratic majorities in both chambers and then Republican governor. I don't mean to suggest that, that automatically creates stalemate, but it but it was a it was a, a relationship of power which we probably didn't fully understand until we got to the end of the session. Uh, so, in terms of charter schools, what were you attempting to be able to, to do? Uh, the uh, the model, which was actually proposed by Commissioner Bowen, I thought I thought brilliantly, uh, was to uh, instead of having charter schools funded by the uh, local communities through which they from which the students, charter students were drawn, uh, we proposed to take to to fund charter schools basically off the top of state funding. Uh, so they would be funded as we fund the magnet school and in, in limestone main school, science and math, uh, uh, Baxter School for the Deaf. So it, these these are schools that are being approved by the state. So it seemed appropriate that the state should uh, should provide the funding for them rather than having locally pro- local property tax uh, dollars, which are committed to maintaining the overall system of public education, have their funds be depleted to to operate these specialized schools. We came very near to being able to do that, and I haven't given up on uh, mm-hmm. on the process. But that that was that was a good example of something which I I still believe made sense that got lost sort of in the thicket of partisan mistrust. Mm-hmm. And the, the notion was to kind of um, spread the, the responsibility for charter schools more broadly rather than focus it on the particular district in which this charter school was, was being proposed. Correct. There were, there were, I think, five schools, charter schools in operation right now in the districts that have been uh, suffered the most as a consequence of that or the ones near where they're located, Skowhegan in particular. Uh, and and exactly, I think the idea is that if it's a, shape, a, a state commitment to provide these opportunities, then that ought to be borne as, as the burden ought to be shared statewide. Mm. And uh, again, you're listening to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about uh, main legislative action, both looking back and looking forward. In the studio with us is uh, State Representative Brian Hubble, who you just heard from. Um, he's on the Education Committee. And also with us is State Representative Walter Kumiega, who is uh, chair of the Marine Resources Committee. Um, Walter, what were some of the, the um, successes that you felt you had last year, and what were some of the challenges? I think one of the biggest things that we did was uh, we reopened the St. Croix River to uh, River Herring. Um, and that was, it seems like a, it was a pretty big deal over basically a sheet of plywood. Um, that was a few years ago, several years ago now, was placed at the top of one of the fishways uh, and the blocked 
uh, access for herring to get above one of the dams. And uh, you know, the public hearing was uh, pretty much an all-day affair. Uh, we had testimony from submitted from the federal government. We had a representative of the Canadian government. Uh, we had representatives of, I believe, of all of Maine's uh, Indian tribes, uh, as well as the Passamaquoddy tribe in, in Canada. Um, and, uh, you know, it was it, it really the public hearing was a big event. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we had historical documents that showed the surveys, you know, 200 year old surveys of the river. Um, and when it came down to it, you know, the committee passed it unanimously, the legislature passed it unanimously, and uh, or almost nearly unanimously, and the governor signed it, went into law. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, the weather didn't cooperate, and we had a, a terrible high water and lots of rain during the uh, the Alive and Back Herring run, and there was a kind of a failure of the run this year, but. Uh, that's a one-year one year occurrence, hopefully, and, and over time that should be uh, should reestablish itself and, and be a big uh, boon to the environment. And what what, what were some of the what's the reason for, you know what's what's the benefit to both the environment and to the fisheries as a whole for having that um, waterway opened up? Um, herring are an incredible food source for everything from bald eagles to fish. Um, they're a good source of lobster bait. Um, it takes a number of years, probably about 10 years, for a fishery to reestablish itself to the point where they can be harvested. Um, but they reestablish themselves very quickly if you can open up new habitat. Um, and uh, they're just an incredible, I've heard them referred to as the Purina dog chow of, of the Gulf of Maine mm. because they really feed almost everything. And they eat. Uh, they're a filter feeder. They eat plankton, so they're converting, you know, a, a source of food that's abundant into a high-protein source of food for for a lot of different fish and, and animals, mm. birds. Mm. What else? What else did you think you accomplished last last session? We should say that um, last session was the regular session, and you're mm-hmm. going into the the is it called the emergency session or not, not the emergency? It's so-called short session. short short session, mm-hmm. and and distinguish between the two. What's what when the founding fathers and mothers set this all up? What was the what was the the rationale for this that we would have? Um, citizen legislators in Augusta mostly for the first year and then the second year was were shorter? Yeah, I, I don't know the exact rationale. I mean, the way it works is the first session legislators could, can submit whatever bill they want. Okay. Uh, the second session, every bill has to be approved by what's called a legislative council, which okay. is leadership of both parties and both houses combined. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a 10-member committee. So... Um, um, and and you know there's historical precedents for generally it's about a hundred bills that are let in. Um, so it's a, in 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 uh, um, Will Rogers' phrase it's a smaller hammer the second yeah. time around. Very much, very much. You know you have to make a, a really good case for um, for your legislation being necessary. Uh-huh. The the other part of it, at least the way it works, is uh, you know unlimited. Uh, essentially an unlimited number of bills that come to us in the first session uh, and the committees work frantically to meet the deadline. We didn't even get out until 
late June, July. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so one of the consequences is that the really difficult bills often get carried over. Uh, yeah. We're we're facing that in the education committee. So we have something that was too difficult to solve in the in the frantic activity of the final weeks of the session. So w- those are the bills that we're working on this short session. So fewer bills. One would hope that we have more time to 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 think sensibly about them and and come up with good policy solutions. So whether or not it was intended, there was a there tends to be a winnowing out of the chaff, and it takes two sessions to work through the more difficult but perhaps more Im- important legislation in the in the second session. I, I yeah, that's that's definitely the uh, the consequence of that. The other side of it, unfortunately, is that. And during the second session, many people are starting to think about re-election. Uh-huh. And so there's a dynamic that, in some circumstances, may make it more difficult for for uh, legislators to work together cooperatively. But I don't think, I mean, from the legislator's point of view, I don't think that's necessary. I think we are still enjoying good, you know, I, I think I can say uniformly that all my colleagues are hoping that we do good work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Uh, yeah. It just it complicates things. Sure. Yeah. sure. yeah. Some some committees meet over the summer or in the fall. Our, our committee met a couple times in December um, to work on some carryover bills just to make sure that we were you know we were able to meet our deadlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing is the first session is you're doing the the biennial budget. Right. Um, so we have more time because we know appropriations is going to take the full six months of the session to get a budget done mm-hmm. so uh, it, it seems like it takes that line and it may be that's because you know things don't happen until the, the last minute but um, I think that was the case this year a lot of the budget negotiations really um, really happened in the last couple of weeks mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where, where we had to have it done so again coming back to anything more that you felt you accomplished the last last uh, session uh well, yeah, another big thing we did was we um, we enacted some enabling legislation to allow the department or to help the department um, create fisheries management plans, <clears throat> which interestingly enough, they hadn't hadn't been part of the the department's charge. Um, and and I think it, it's a more will lead to a more thoughtful process of, of fisheries management. So is scallops one of those one of those species that they spent time, the department spent time kind of working on and that they will continue that work with other species? Yeah. Um, I mean, scallops actually, we don't have what would fit the technical definition of a, of a management plan, a fisheries management plan. I mean, we have a plan for, for restoring them. Um, so it, it's part of the way there, but there are, it's kind of a, there's a technical definition for a fisheries management plan. Um, and we actually, the first thing that's going to be item or fish, well, it's not really a fish, is seaweed, rockweed. Uh-huh. Right. Um, that fisheries management plan is very close to being done. Um, uh, sea urchins, um, the sea urchin council has been working on a fisheries management plan, uh, you know, with support from the department, but the council has actually done a lot of the work themselves. Um, so they're f- that's fairly close to being a, a completed plan. And, and, I mean, they're never complete. They're always being updated because things are always changing. Sure, sure. Um, and, I mean, for myself, I passed a, a bill that I submitted uh, on poultry processing was, was passed into law. Um, and, and I get the credit, but the Agriculture Committee did a lot of 
really worked very hard with the department. Uh, actually, Cooperative Extension helped with that bill and to simplify the regulations to allow more small farms to process poultry. So was that an example um, of a constituent or a group of constituents coming to you and say, this is important to us? Or was that you say, looking out at the landscape and saying, this is what's needed? Um, at, partially, it came from a person that I buy chicken from. Okay. <laughs> yeah. A farm. Um, it's partially a personal interest. My grandparents used to own a chicken farm, a uh, poultry farm. My dad, my mother, actually, before they were even married, worked, she worked on the farm with him. Um, and uh, that farm actually was shut down by the federal government because, well, if they came in and said either you close or you spend a pile of money on stainless steel equipment. And uh, at that point, you know, they were all, my grandparents, my dad, were all working off the farm. It wasn't making very much money and it wasn't, you know, feasible to make that kind of investment. So um, it's kind of a always been in the back of my head that if I could ever do something about that, right. I would. Right. And, and there you uh, go. never thought that I would ever be able to do yep. something about it. But. Here it is. And, and, and what about this balance between what constituents are asking you to do and what you kind of come out of your own background? Uh, Brian, do you have a, a, a sense of what the, that balance looks like for you, for, you, for instance? Um, I, I, they're both important pieces of what we do. Uh, I, uh, I, I tend to get directly involved in policy, which I'm familiar with, uh, but I'm uh, – always grateful and find it i learn so much by by talking with constituents uh it's it's really important for our constituents to talk to talk to us because there's uh, i mean there's a citizen legislature so we're not uh, there, our breadth of knowledge is 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 not necessarily that great so uh we we learn and depend upon uh hearing what the concerns of our constituents are and mm -hmm. that's really rewarding uh and and valuable work mm. we're, we're trying to get representative malaby on the phone we'll list our phone number in case he's listening and we just don't have the right number um, one 625 uh, if you're interested in, in calling in so let's turn now to some of the things that you anticipate working on in the in the upcoming session it's that just started um representative hubble what, what are some of the things the education committee will be working on one of those i think is one of the things that got carried over yeah, the funding bill is a big part of that, uh, and I, I think what we're going to try to do, uh, we've learned from the report that there's a couple of areas that we need to, uh, may need to do better. Generally, we do a fairly decent job of equitably providing funding across the state. It's nice to have that confirmed. Uh, early education, pre-K, uh, voluntary pre-K, uh, I want to emphasize it. We're talking about voluntary pre-K, not mandatory pre-K. Uh, there's a lot of interest, broad interest from business community educators uh, about uh, implementing that because there's a good return on not just the investment but the effort that goes into that. Uh, more professional development for teachers uh, because of the art, uh, increasing expectations. And um, also I, I think we, we've learned that we don't necessarily do the best job for economically disadvantaged uh, students, and so we're going to struggle with that a bit. Uh, myself, uh, I've been working recently uh, with Senator Langley on a uh, uh, bill which I, uh, 
I have high hopes for it to allow schools to work collaboratively to provide content through virtual education, a statewide model, a publicly overseen model as opposed to the virtual charter schools, which is another parallel thing. So I, so I, that, I, uh, I think that's a hopeful development. Uh, and uh, there's a number of other bills that mm. we're, we're going to try to struggle through at this time. Well, perhaps we'll get some phone calls about um, some of those. And, and Representative Comiego, I'll come back to you to ask that que- same question. What will you be working on as a uh, Marine Resources Committee? But on the phone with us, we have State Representative Richard Malaby um, from the uh, town of Hancock. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, uh, Rich. Good morning. How are you? How's everyone doing? Great. We, we've got, of course, um, uh, Brian Hubble, your colleague Brian Hubble, and, and uh, your colleague Walter Comiega here. Um, unfortunately, uh, Senator Langley was not able to join us because of some legislative responsibilities this morning, so he isn't in the studio. So we're glad that you could join us. Tell us a little bit about what um, got you involved. You um, have a, a, a more recent history in the, um, the culinary field, um, something you share with uh, Senator Langley, I understand. But what led you to um, get involved in, in uh, the, the legislature, to run for the legislature? Well, uh, Ron, there were a number of issues, really. Uh, a, you know, the whole self-employment experience, and I felt that, you know, our uh, our state was not moving ahead. I, I had really, when I moved here, which was quite some time ago, 1980, I, I saw Maine as this uh, oh, kind of a last bastion of, of free enterprise and just independent people and, and so beautiful and what a wonderful place to live. Mm. Uh, over the years, I, I, I came to observe, I, I felt like oftentimes that state, the state, uh, the entity of the state and businesses were seemingly adversarial, which I didn't like that. Uh, but also opportunities seemed to be shrinking, uh, you know, as we watched the the demise, if you will, or the partial demise of our traditional industries as we become, you know, really a post-industrial world. You know, our, our mills are not doing well, our, our fishing industry is not doing great, nor is, nor is farming, although I guess there's, there's certainly been a change there of late. And, and I just saw a diminishing of opportunities, and I thought, well, you know, having had some experience, A, uh, serving at a local school board and then a hospital board, I thought I could bring something to bear there. And, mm. uh, so that that's really why, mm. or and, how I should say. Yeah, and and so um, you uh, this is you serving in your second term. I am. Yeah, and and you chose to get involved in in human services, and I know that uh, last year you got a a really nice recognition by the adoptive families and foster families of Maine for your work um, in the legislature. Tell us about what led you to that particular focus. Well, that's a very interesting one, Ron. In that. Uh, you know, to run for office, you need to get a certain number of signatures. To be honest, it's not quite—it's not too many to run for uh, a representative. Twenty-five signatures was what I needed. Uh, I went around in my for the start of my second term, or when I was running again the second time, and I got thirty signatures. But during the course of obtaining those signatures, I spoke with six different uh, individuals, all of whom I'd known before, uh, all of whom were what I would call kinship families. Hmm. Uh, something I was totally kind of unaware of. Um, and by that I mean they were grandparents uh, to their grandchildren for whom they had permanent uh, guardianship, um, which is to say that oftentimes their children were unprepared to be parents for whatever reason. Um, sometimes that would be a, a misuse of drugs. Mm. And so I, I didn't, I wasn't aware that there was this such a large group of these people. So I, I began to investigate, and I put some bills in and, and worked for 
worked on behalf of that, and I, yes, indeed, I was. I was named the uh, Legislative Childhood Advocate of the Year. Mm. So, um, you know, I do a lot of work on behalf of the the uh, the foster care and the guardianship, and I have another bill in now. Uh, permanent guardians are treated somewhat differently than than foster parents. And these are permanent guardians. These are people who say, "Look, I'm going to take care of this child." or children forever. Frequently they're much older, they could easily be in their 60s, the kids could be young, uh, but they are means-tested for the purposes of the free lunch program, whereas uh, uh, children in, in the uh, foster system are not. They, they get all their, boom, benefits for free, if you will. And I've been witnessing some of these people who are elderly, who've been, uh, you know, their, their incomes are oftentimes in fixed or in decline, their assets are in decline, and uh, some of them asked me to put, put in a bill that'll go to Brian's committee uh, about enabling this to happen. I don't know if it'll happen because there's federal code that, that may prevent it, but we'll see if we can find a way to circumvent that because I get worried about these kinship families. We have too many children in Maine whose parents are not taking care of them, so these kinship families will do everything for their blood, if you will, mm. uh, but I'd like to make it easier for them. Yeah. Yeah. And what was, as you look back in terms of the, the overall work of the Health and Human Services uh, Committee, what were some of the things that you felt you got accomplished last time around? And then we'll ask you the same question. I'll ask um, our folks in the studio, what, what will you be anticipating working on this next um, session beside that, that individual right. thing? Um, I got, you know, I, I a number of things related to children and drugs mm. uh, last year. And by that, I mean... Uh, I, I put I get the state to put in place via legislation a thing to measure uh, kids in the child welfare system frequently prescribed a much higher incidence of antipsychotic drugs. Um, these kids sometimes have been bounced around. Now I'm not talking kinship families. I'm talking yes. uh, um, kids who've been um, what's the word I'm looking for in foster care. <laughs> and so uh, I was able to get a piece of legislation enacted that will do some baseline uh, neurologic and metabolic measurement for these kids and determine if, in point of fact, they don't have a psychiatric condition, they're just acting out. At the end of six months, we have to stop the administration of uh, antipsychotic drugs. Uh, It's been a major historical problem. It's it's a sad one, I'm sorry to say. Uh, In a related area, uh, I've been able to get... um, a study going. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at uh, case studies, if you will, of what's happening. Why do we have such a high incidence of children, uh, particularly young children, being prescribed uh, ADHD drugs? And how did it happen? Uh, is, it the, is it the family exerting undue influence? Is it the school nurse? Is it a doctor? You know, we don't have, in our rural Maine, we don't have access to uh, child psychiatrists here. We really don't. In fact, we don't have great access to psychiatrists. So, you know, we're finding out that, you know, kids, particularly in the child welfare system, are being prescribed these drugs four to five times the incidence of other children. We're like, why is that? Uh, and, and we think we know, but we really want to do a study and find out why and, mm. and begin to measure it. Um, yeah, I, I do a lot of things related to children. Another one, is a couple others are, you know, have to do with um, recording, uh, you know, what's happening to kids in terms of uh, the number of children who are born addicted to drugs. Um, it's another concern of mine, and, and we, we, we've certainly had some issues and changed some laws so, so as to, uh, I think, put us in a better position to document and maybe intervene early. 
recently because we've had we've had a number of children who passed. Uh, we're talking infants who, over like a 16 month period, we had like nine of them who passed, uh, and they were drug addicted, and we didn't know it, and they were under you know under five months old. Uh, so this parent is drug addicted. We should know that in advance, and we should take steps to to provide a safe environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's yeah. It sounds like um, there's lots that keeps you um, active and excited about this process. What what do you what do you suppose is most satisfying for you about um, serving in the legislature? Um, that's interesting. You know, when when you can get you see something through and you feel that you've done right, uh, that that's always a good thing. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, something that is oftentimes very difficult but can lead to immense reward is constituent service. You know, if you have a constituent with an issue and a problem, and uh, maybe you can help get some resolution uh, or, or, or foster an environment in which they're now communicating with the state and things can get dealt with, that, that's, a, that's a very positive thing. Uh, there's a great deal of fulfillment. And, and, you know, to be honest, there are times in which, you know, we make a phone call and something happens, and I think it's often irrelevant to what we've done, but we'll happily take credit. <laughs> but sometimes things just work out over time. Um, but constituent service, resolving some of those problems, that's all good. And then just trying to put the state, I think, on a better um, fiscal path uh, is something that concerns me. Great. Well, we uh, evidently we have a, a caller. I'm delighted to hear that. We've got a caller with a particular question for you. So if you could stay on the line and, and take this question, this would be great. So, um, caller, if you just list your first name and where you're calling from and then go ahead with your question for Representative Malaby. Sure. Uh, my name is Carol, and I'm calling from Bangor. Yes, and go ahead, please. Uh, it's it's not it's more of a statement than a question. I I was just thrilled as I was listening to what you had to say. <clears throat> I am a professional therapist. I took full guardianship of a grandchild two and a half years ago, and it has not been a pleasing experience. This child is deeply wounded. Um, she's been hurt by many circumstances in life, but all of that rage has been focused on me. And I tried, I've tried in so many ways to have so many interventions to support her and me. Number one, she refuses any interventions. But number two, um, a couple of years ago, um, I was basically threatened that if you try to get rid of her or you kick her out, we'll take your professional license. We'll report you to your board. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That's that may be a side of this kinship guardianship that you're not not aware of. Well, thanks so much for your story and and for raising that that particular reality um, that uh, so many of these kinship families uh, might be facing. Thanks so much for your call. Well, there's one, one okay. more item. Um, my doctors wrote letters. My attorney wrote a letter. I tried to present it to the probate court to have guardianship rescinded. They would not even look at it. Mm. So that's all I had to say, and I wanted you to hear that. And I'm I'm really grateful that I was able to speak with you. Well, stay on the line because, and, and may I speak directly? To yes, that, please, please. Uh, first of all, thank you. Sure. Thank are you. we still on the line? Or are we yes, you are. Yes, oh, you are. I don't if, want to if say I too may. much more because I'm on the radio, but I'd like to try an opportunity to speak with you off sure. the radio. That would be fine. Just give me uh, look me up on. You know, you can find me online and 
What I'm is your happy first to talk, name, Mr. Malaby? It's, um, it's I, Richard. I didn't hear Richard what you just said. Yeah, it's okay. Richard Malaby. Representative Richard Malaby, yeah, and you can find find that information um, on uh, the state's website. Um, yep. Put that into your your search engine, and and uh, his contact information will come up. Thank you so much. Thank well, you. Listen to what I have to say. There's something called treatment foster care. Mm-hmm. Um, these are for, and I've attended some meetings in Bangor mm-hmm. for the really troubled children, and they give the the care providers the tools and the skills to try and, and, and change the situation. Um, it's, boy, it's, it's a difficult and untenable and, she, oh, I, I just, I, I, I'm I would, aware of that. She refuses to participate. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to I'm going to suggest that um you uh, contact uh Representative Malaby um on your own t- uh, time and see if we can um, move this forward. So thanks uh, thanks uh caller for for uh, giving us a, a yeah. heads up on that. Sure. Thank you for day. taking care of your grandchild. Yes. Oh, you're more yes. than welcome. It's really Yeah, she is my grandchild and I love her dearly. Thank you so much. Representative Malaby, thanks for raising this issue, not only on this program, but for your work on that, to raise it um, in so many other uh, ways so that we can um, take a look at it and perhaps make better policy. Yeah, I'd like to. And, you know, one of the pleasures that I have personally gained uh, from my experience in the legislature, now I'm entering my fourth year, is that I've seen the department change its attitude. Uh, it had such a bad reputation for so long for doing the wrong things. Um, we were taking 10, 12 years ago, we were taking way too many kids out of their homes. Uh, we have to learn to be a more supportive and, and caring environment, and, and, and our children are our future. And, um, you know, we can't surrender to drugs. We can't surrender to all these issues. And we, we just have to provide a better environment. It's, it's, it, it's, it's heart-wrenching at times. Mm within that committee to hear these stories much like we just heard and, and you're like gosh but it, i can tell you ron with 100 percent certainty that it is changing however incrementally <laughs> however marginally sure it is changing for the better well thanks for your work and thanks for um coming on the radio with us uh, by telephone oh i'm happy to do so great state representative richard malaby town of hancock and, and representing that region in the legislature in the studio with us we have representative brian hubble and representative walter Comiega, and we're going to turn to them but we'll also list our phone numbers because perhaps you've got your own um uh, question or your own experience to share here on talk of the towns as we talk about main legislative action looking back and looking forward give us a call at one eight six six. Six two five nine three seven eight. Well, I wanted to come back to uh, Representative Kumiega and ask him what are some of the things that you may be dealing with in the in the upcoming session in terms of marine resources. And then I'll ask you some of the questions I asked uh, Representative Malaby. What what's satisfying to serve in the in the legislature? But first, uh, what, what do you anticipate coming up? I think the biggest thing we'll be working on um, is uh, lobster licensing and the lobster fishing industry. Um, there's a lot of latent effort. In, What's that in, mean? Um, fishermen who are people who hold licenses but aren't fishing um, and, or aren't fishing very much. So, we're, so they don't we're, lose those licenses. Um, right. They, they get to keep them as long as they haven't um, done something wrong. They get to keep those, and, but they're not fishing currently. Right. Uh, and we're going to uh, – I think we're looking at some different ways of trying to reduce that amount of effort because it makes it 
management decisions, very difficult. And, and remind us that, that um, Maine has, has begun to deal with this, this question of, of uh, they're going to manage fisheries by re, um, managing the effort. And that that right. gets to the number of licenses that are um, available at any time. So you've got if you've got all these latent licenses, new folks can't get in. That's true. Okay. Yeah, most most of the fishing lobster zones are southern lobster zones, and most of them are are closed to new entrants. Um, well, they're not completely closed. They have a, a an ex- entry exit ratio. So many people out, so many people back in, um, and that's it's a. It's a fairly complicated system, but it, it, it's working. Um, and it was it was put in place by the fishermen. I mean, that's that's one of the things well, that you know, largely the, yeah. fishermen largely support it. Yeah. Um, you know, here in, in Hancock County, Zone C is is an open zone. Um, anybody who's completed the apprentice program, which is basically two years of, of uh, working as a stern man, can get a license. Uh, they can get a license that uh, carries with it 300 trap tags, and then they can build up to 800. Um, in the other zones, uh, you finish your apprentice program and go on a waiting list and wait for so many fishermen to right. get out. So it's, it's a slower process. Uh, and, and for people who are on the waiting list, it's a very slow process. Um, some of those zones have a very, very small number of fishermen who are in their 20s and 30s. Hmm. Um, to where it you know, if it continues, it, it could be a, a, a real problem down the road, um, missing a whole generation of, of fishermen. Mm. Um, so we're looking at different ways of, of possibly speeding up that transition. Um, I think the important thing we want to do is have uh, little, if uh, at least at, at most, a minimal effect on people who are already fishing, you know, guys who are making their living full-time on the water. Um, we want to try and, as much as possible, leave them alone, mm. uh, let them do their, their thing. And, uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the suggestions that has come, actually came from people on the, some people on the waiting list was a smaller, a lower trap limit for new entrants. Um, let them get started. Let them get started, and it would, it would, it would, uh, it would allow more people in without increasing effort beyond you know you have more people fishing fewer traps mm. well you have the opportunity to to uh, hear from constituents that when you meet them in the supermarket or at the post office and so on what are some of the ways that um, you find most effective when citizens want to um, testify or, or get in touch in terms of this um, this uh, the, the lobster licensing bill or on on our charter school um, funding what are the ways in which people can uh, are best communicating with you Brian, first. Um, any direct communication is effective. Uh, we get, we get, I think, two distinct categories of correspondence. One is sort of bulk email for form letters that get put out to us, and you know we recognize those, but they don't. I, I don't think they're as compelling as one person uh, providing you with a direct legitimate experience. So any way that uh, a constituent is comfortable with approaching a legislator by phone and person at the supermarket happens all the time, <laughs> email or showing up in Augusta, believe me, we pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Walter, what would you add? Yeah, I think personal, these right, personal stories are, are the, the best, uh, the be- most effective thing, uh, whether it's uh, they want to talk to me or um, testifying on a bill that's what legislators really listen to is mm-hmm. personal stories and you know if, if you have a somebody has a strong feeling about um, 
legislation, whether it's in my committee or some other committee, if they can't make it to Augusta, they can send me an email. I can print it out and give it to the committee as, as written testimony. Um, I've done that on a number of occasions. Mm, I'll list our phone numbers one more time because maybe there's some constituents out there that have some opinions like our fir first caller, one 625-9378. We'll put you in touch with Talk of the Towns here and our, our uh, guests, uh, Representative Brian Hubble and Representative Walter Comiega. So I asked uh, Senator, I mean, Representative Malaby what was satisfying about this work, and, and maybe I could get some similar res responses or, or ask you the same question. What's satisfying about this, uh, this work, uh, uh, Representative Hubble? Um, it, it may sound trite, but it's actually being able to make a difference. Uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, Maine is a special state uh, where one person can have a conversation with with, with uh, a legislator legislator in Augusta and save us from making a bad decision. Uh, and just in, in one level, it's it's kind of a, a frightening responsibility to realize that, but uh, it's also very gratifying to be able to just help a little bit. Mm -hmm. and that was, uh, again, uh, Representative Malaby's comment. Is, I can make a difference, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, Rich nailed it with constituent services. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, having that individual who is in the middle of a, of a really difficult problem. Um, when, uh, like when I was being, uh, first considering running, a, a representative said, you know, it's all good, but the thing that will make you come back is helping an old man with uh, getting his fuel assistance. Right. And uh, she was right. Yeah. And I had an opportunity to do that uh, for a guy who was in his 90s, a World War II veteran, and he couldn't have been more more appreciative. So that's a role of direct services. What about the role that I've, I'm aware of, and that's the role of convener, where a legislator can kind of bring people together to talk about things that maybe somebody else couldn't do as easily. Do you find yourself in, in that con con convening kind of role? Do you see that happening? Yes. As a first-time legislator, that was it kind of surprised me to sort of assume that responsibility. Uh, but you realize that that is, that is, in fact, a valuable role that you play. Uh, people listen. People invite you to, uh, uh, you know, to, to in, hear information sessions. And, and, and we have the opportunity to say, geez, I'd really like to talk to you about this. Or you should, you should you, this group should be The two be of speaking, you should be talking, should be right? talking together. Right. And... That is, as you well understand, that's how things happen. Mm. Uh, and so it, it takes a little while, for, uh, I think, for individual legislators to, to understand that role that we assume. Uh, but I agree. I think that's very critical and effective mm. and powerful. Mm -hmm. do, do people tend to, to – I mean, it's hard to say, but um, my sense is that Maine is a different different place. And because you're citizen legislators, you're known in your communities. Mm -hmm. You know, you may take a policy decision that everybody doesn't like, but – they approach you, and they t they talk about um, the differences. Is that is that is my sense accurate? Do you think? Oh yeah, absolutely, mm. absolutely. It's it's a little challenging in my district because you know I, I represent people from Vinyl Haven to Frenchboro, so I don't see them in the grocery store right as often as as uh, maybe Brian does. But uh, you know they all have my email address, my phone number are out there, and I mean I spent. Forty-five minutes yesterday talking with a guy from the Isle Hope Power Company, um, trying to trying to straighten something out, and 
you know, and it's a situation where I might not be able to help him, but I'm going to look into it and and I'm, I'm going to learn something about policy that I didn't I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know that's a a, a challenge. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a a challenge that uh, a lot of my uh, islands rep have is is high power costs. Sure. So. Sure. Um, Anything that can be done. If I can do something to help Isle of Ho, maybe it'll help some of the other islands too. Right. right. So, um, f- kind of final question as we begin to, to wrap up. Um, um, you're you're in a situation where you're you use the word termed out. That means that you're you're um, only allowed. Um, eight years, four terms um, in the legislature before, um, by law, you can't run for that seat again. So imagine you're, you're down the road a little bit and you're, you're advising someone to, to run for your seat. What would you tell someone uh, about running for the legislature in your particular um, district? Um, what, what, um, what would you advise uh, some, some, somebody who might have the same interest, they might have gotten that citizen interest at the local level and they're ready to take it up a notch? I'll, I'll take a stab at that just because it's relatively recent for me. Uh, I had not thought of myself, well, probably none of us think of ourselves as politician. <laughs> um, and I was apprehensive about taking on that role individually. And and perhaps my initial fear was greatest about going around and knocking on people's doors. Uh, and, you know, as a salesman, say, please vote for me. Um, and... That turned out to me to be the most rewarding part. Uh, and you talking, just talking and being close and communicating with constituents gives a good representative the confidence, I think, to, to, uh, to do the work. Uh, because you, uh, if, you have, if, if you talk with people, you have the confidence that you understand what the concerns are, and that gives you the authority to speak for, for your constituents. That's great. So you don't necessarily have to have the confidence to start with, but you gain it along the way. A quick response from Walter Camiega? You know, it's funny. I felt the same. I was scared to death of doing do- <laughs> knocking on doors, and I, I loved it. Uh-huh. I really enjoy it. Right. Uh, and in my case, you get to see the most beautiful legislative district in the state. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks once again to our guests, State Representatives Brian Hubble and Walter Cuniega, and by phone, Representative Richard Malaby. Thanks to our underwriters. Um, thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.